The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 28th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It is Memorial Day weekend, which means that the majority of you are not going to work tomorrow and you're meant to take time tomorrow to remember all of those men and women who gave their life so that you didn't have to go to work tomorrow, who gave their life for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And as I thought about it, thought about my own family, thought about my own friends, one of the things that seems to pop up in any conversation of sacrifice like this is that in all of humanity, it doesn't really matter what country or people you're talking about. In the history of humanity, it always seems like the man's idea of freedom is something that's worth sacrificing for. No matter what culture you're talking about, their idea of freedom always seems to be something that's worth sacrificing Now, as precious as the freedom is that we enjoy in this country, and I hope you're able to see the freedoms that we have in this country as precious. And if you're not, you're not that quite there yet. I am going to Central Asia this fall. You can go with me and you can experience another culture and you can have your eyes open to how precious the freedoms are that you experience in this country. But as precious as what we experience as freedom here there is a far greater and more fundamental freedom that you and I were created to enjoy. You need to understand that. There is a far greater and more fundamental freedom that you and I were created to enjoy. The book of Galatians that we're going through this year, the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in that region, it is a letter about this freedom. This entire letter is fundamentally about the greater freedom that you and I are meant to enjoy and live in. In fact, I'll give you a a preview of what's coming in a few weeks. Galatians chapter five, verse one. Paul will write that it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, John Piper will write about this and he'll say that this is the will of God for you, your freedom. Now, I'll stop there for a second. As a pastor, the majority of conversations that I have with people usually circle around something that sounds like this. I need to figure out what God's will for me is in this. What's God's will for me in my life? What's God's will for me in this decision? What's God's will for me in this house? What's God's will for me in whatever it is? The place we start in trying to determine what God's will for us is, is what he explicitly says in his word. And so Piper will help us to see that God's will for you is your freedom. And he goes on to say, this freedom is uncompromising, unrelenting, indomitable freedom. For this Jesus died, for this he rose, for this he sent his spirit. There is nothing he wills with more intensity under the glory of his own name than this, your freedom. The book of Galatians is about your freedom. It's about the good news, that's the gospel, the good news declaring that the freedom that God wills for you with all the intensity of his glory is yours, not because of anything that you can do to make it happen, but because of what he's already done for you through his son. 
Galatians, we've said, is about the gospel. The gospel is the declaration of the freedom that God wills and intends for you to enjoy and live in that comes not by your obedience, not by your performance, but by Jesus's obedience in your place. That's what the book is about. Paul is going to spend the entirety of this letter unpacking the nature of this freedom and the particulars of what it looks like as we live it out day in and day out here on this earth. But that's what's coming. Much like many of the lesser freedoms we enjoy as citizens of this country, the freedom that God wills for us to enjoy and live in, at times it must be preserved. It must be fought for. The churches that Paul is writing to here in Galatia, they were quite literally an outpost of Christian freedom. The entire region of Galatia was a Gentile region. Paul had gone into Galatia. He had proclaimed or declared the good news of freedom through faith in Christ alone. And men and women and entire families had believed and were beginning to live in the freedom of that gospel. And they were like a little outpost in unchartered territory. But as Paul had left, remember, some teachers had come into that outpost. And these teachers were opposing the freedom that Paul proclaimed. And so in the letter that Paul is writing, the freedom of the gospel for God's people is on the line. And this morning, as we get into Galatians chapter 2, what we're going to find is Paul again taking the church back to a time earlier in his ministry when he had to fight for the preservation of the gospel, when the freedom of the gospel had to be preserved. And this morning, as we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I want us to look at it through two main lenses. So I'm telling you what I'm going to do first. I never do that. Some of you are like, finally, I can breathe. I got things to write down. This is what we're going to do. The first lens we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 through, is the lens of preservation. The vital need in every place and in every day to preserve the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. The vital need to preserve the gospel. The second lens, and this is much shorter, the second lens that we're going to look at this morning is the beauty of partnership that's born out of the gospel. When the gospel is rightly preserved in its simplicity and in its beauty, it lays the only sure foundation for a unity of mission, for a unity of partnership and the expansion of the gospel. Preservation, partnership. Chapter two, verse one. After 14 years, I, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, 
When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That is a mouthful. It's arguably, some commentators will say, the most difficult passage in all of Galatians. There's parenthetical statements. There's parenthetical statements inside parenthetical statements. There's run-on sentences. There's clauses going all over the place. That's why we're going to look at the whole thing through two lenses. Preservation, partnership. First one, the vital need to preserve the gospel. 14 years later, Paul is talking about a trip he took. He's telling the Galatians, talking about a trip he took back to Jerusalem. So he's going back again to Jerusalem, but this time he takes people with him. He takes Barnabas with him and Titus with him. Now, there's something about Titus that Paul tells us that's important for what he's trying to say. What did Paul tell us specifically about Titus? What's Titus's background? He's Greek. He's not an Israelite. He's not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Titus was an uncircumcised Greek who had spent the majority of his life worshiping idols and eating pork. There's no telling, and this is going to be important for the argument, there's no telling the number of things that Titus had done in his life prior to hearing the good news of the gospel that would have been an abomination to an Israelite. The various habits and activities and practices that he would have engaged in in his worship of idols the various cultural ceremonies and things he would have participated in and been at, all of these things that would have been an absolute abomination to an Israelite, that was what characterized Titus's former life. Titus was as unlike those in Jerusalem as anybody could be, yet he had heard of the freedom that God wills for his people through faith alone in Christ alone, and he had believed, and he had received that freedom and he had begun to live in that freedom. And Paul takes him to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there are some who want to say, huh, hold on, pump the brakes, Titus. You're, you're partly there, but not quite all the way yet. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. <clears throat> because of false brothers secretly brought in, and look what they were trying to do. They slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ. They had heard the message that Paul was preaching. They had heard that Paul had Gentiles with him. They had heard he had men like Titus with him. And Titus wasn't circumcised. Titus, Titus wasn't following kosher law. He wasn't following cultural standards. He wanted to slip in and see what it was Paul was doing so that they might bring us into slavery. Hold on the freedom, Titus. Praise God, you've believed in Christ for salvation, but you're not quite there yet. There's still this issue of becoming like us. There's still specifically this issue of circumcision. Now that takes you all the way back to the book of Genesis and the promise and the covenant that God had made with Abraham. The sign of the promise that God had made to Abraham to bless his people and to create through him a people that would be a blessing to the nations from whom which the long-awaited Messiah would come, who through would be a blessing to all peoples in all places. The sign of that promise for God's people was the taking of circumcision. For centuries, that had been the sign of God's people. These 
teachers were coming in and saying, yes, we have believed like you that God saves through the Messiah, through Jesus, and you have believed that message. But now, to show that you really are serious about what you say, you need to become like us. This circumcision, Titus, this is just the physical evidence that you're really sincere about what you're believing. This is just the physical evidence that you really are the real deal. This is how you'll identify as truly being part of God's people. Titus, God won't fully accept you until you accept this condition. That's what's underneath what's happening here. Acts chapter 15 talks about another time they were in Jerusalem. And it talks about the kind of people that Paul is talking about here. And they're called the Judaizers. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, you can go look at it this week. We'll talk about these Judaizers and, and say that they actually would teach that you could not be saved unless you were circumcised. God won't fully accept you until you accept this condition. So again, the simplicity and the sufficiency of the gospel is at stake. They wanted all believers, especially Gentile believers, to adopt Jewish culture. They needed them to become kosher, so to speak. <clears throat> Philip Ryken, who was a fantastic pastor in Philadelphia years ago, he said the book of Galatians is partly about ethnocentrism. It's a popular topic these days in the church. It's not new. The book of Galatians, he said, is partly about ethnocentrism. And here's what that is. It's taking a cultural distinctive and making it a theological necessity. These people were trying to take Titus and Paul back into slavery by saying, you need to take our culture as a necessity for your theological assurance. Riken goes on to say, the deeper issue is the perpetual danger of always adding our own requirements to the only thing that God requires for salvation, which is faith in Christ alone. You see, the story of what's happening back then in Jerusalem with Paul and with Titus reminds us even now that the place where you and I are most likely to experience the freedom of God's grace is also the place where we're most in danger of losing it. Why? Because in the heart of every single sinful man and woman like you and like me is the temptation to add something to the gospel. I'm glad we're not talking in 2017 about circumcision. I'm glad that's not the condition or the prerequisite that we seem to be arguing about adding to the message of the gospel for salvation. But we do it in a thousand other ways. I mean, this past fall, you couldn't have gone to too many churches in America where you wouldn't have heard someone say yes and amen and faith in Christ alone, but to really be a good Christian, you need to vote a certain way. Good Christians do these things. There's 10,000 ways we do, in essence, the same thing that these people were doing in Jerusalem. There is a culture that develops in the church. There's a culture that develops in our own hearts that left unchecked will bind people to conditions and prerequisites for acceptance before God and acceptance with us based on our own traditions, on our own cultures, on our own preferences. Yes and amen, Jesus gets you in. But to stay in, you got to look like me, dress like me, sound like me, do church like me, sing songs like me. And it's always like whoever's talking. There's this tendency in the sinful human heart 
to bind ourselves and then to bind others by conditions or necessities added to the simplicity of the gospel for acceptance before God. This is what was happening there. To make our acceptance with God dependent upon our obedience to any rule or cultural regulation, Paul says, is to take a free man and put him back in bondage. So listen to this. To receive salvation by faith alone in Christ alone because of the grace of God alone and then in your own heart to make your acceptance before God then conditional on any particular pattern or behavior that you put on yourself or someone else has put on you is taking someone who was free and turning them back in slavery. Anytime we put any kind of prerequisite or condition, be it behavioral, traditional, or cultural, on someone for acceptance with God or acceptance with ourselves apart from the simplicity of faith alone in Christ alone, you're taking them back into bondage. Paul won't stand for it. Verse five, he says to them, those who were seeking to do this, those who were seeking to say this cultural necessity, this cultural tradition is a requirement or a condition for full acceptance before God. Paul says to them, we didn't even yield for a moment. We didn't submit for a moment. Paul was absolutely unrelenting in his preservation of the gospel. Why? Because he loves the message of grace too much and he loves the God of all grace too much. Paul would not stand for anything to be added to the simplicity of the gospel and for anyone living in the freedom of the gospel bought by the blood of Christ to be taken back into slavery by some traditional or cultural or arbitrary preference or rule. And here's the thing. You and I can't stand for it either. And it can creep into our heart so easily and so subtly. If you think about this whole argument that Paul's making about circumcision and adherence to Jewish cultural traditions for acceptance before God, you think about it like the 50,000 foot view. Underneath it and underneath all the ways that you and I bind ourselves and then at times bind others, underneath all of it is one thing. It's the issue of whether or not we believe the finished work of Christ on the cross is sufficient. Is what Jesus did on the cross sufficient? Is faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation, for your righteousness, for your acceptance before God for all eternity sufficient? Or do you need to add to it? Jesus will never be restricted by any human culture or any worldly system. And he will never require more from us than putting our faith and trust in him alone. You need to hear that. In any time and in any place, Jesus will never be diminished or restricted by any human culture or by any worldly system. And he will never require more from you than putting your trust 
and your faith in him alone. And if Jesus does not require more from you for righteousness and acceptance before God, if he doesn't require anything more from you than faith alone in him, here's what it means, you and I can't require any more of each other either. It means you and I as God's people can't require anything more from people who gather together with us than faith alone in Christ alone for assurance and acceptance before God. It seems simple. Don't we do that, right? We already do that. What's the big deal? The big deal is our sinful human hearts are always looking for ways to try to put some kind of prerequisite or some kind of condition upon ourselves and upon other people. There's 10,000 ways we do it. Yes, don't we only require people to believe in Christ alone for salvation? That's what we do here. Yes, but when people come here and when we come to get to know them, here's what happens in the sinful human heart. You ready? It might happen in yours. I know it happens in mine sometimes. I'm guilty of it. People come in and we get to know them. Like Peter and Paul, we talked about last week, they begin to share stories. We hear about how God revealed his son to them. Where were you when God got a hold of you? What was going on with you? And we tell the story of the former life, the life that God transformed and the glory of it being former because he made us new. And all of a sudden we realize some people went through certain experiences that our heart can't quite get its head around. Yes and amen, you heard the message of the gospel and believed in Christ, but, but in your heart you have longings and desires for those of the same gender as you. You need to keep that quiet. You found yourself in a position in life when you didn't feel like you had any other options, and so you ended the pregnancy that you had. You need to keep that quiet over here. Oh, you struggle with lying or you struggle with gossip or you struggle with coveting. For that, we can agree. That we can deal with. But these other things, you just need to keep those things in the closet. And when they come out, what begins to happen is because our heart can't wrap our head and we can't get our minds around doing what maybe they had done in a former life, we create this kind of Christian purgatory here on earth where you can gather, you can be a part, but fully accepted? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Praise God, you got eternity. We'll all be there together. Friends, there are a million ways our sinful heart does the very thing that Paul is addressing and fighting in Jerusalem. We might not require people to to wear certain clothes or or like Paul, get circumcised or, or do certain things, but our sinful heart certainly does. It requires it of ourselves and and it requires it of others. Eugene Peterson was writing about this and he said, we have this habit of imposing some kind of condition on people as a prerequisite to the freedom that's already theirs in the gospel. Before God, friends, you need to catch this. Before God, for those who have placed their faith upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there is no difference between us. Doesn't matter from what tribe, tongue, or nation you came from. It doesn't matter from what experiences you had in your past. Just think about Titus. Just think about all that he had done, all that had made up his former life 
before God set him free through Christ. Just think about how offensive all of that would have been to the believers in Jerusalem. Yet, he stands there before them, a man forgiven by the grace of God through Christ, and they accept him, one writer says, as a first-rate brother in Christ. Friends, that needs to be true of us. Before God, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, there is no difference between us, which means there should be no difference between us when we're together. There's no room for us to create those kind of distinctions between us. There needs to be no difference in our standing with one another. Jesus is enough. Jesus alone is enough to make any sinner right with God. We have no right to add any of our own requirements to his perfection. Now here's the good news of the story. Paul is there fighting to preserve this freedom, fighting to preserve the simplicity of the gospel. The good news is the apostles in Jerusalem, they agreed with him. He laid out the message of freedom that he's been proclaiming. He laid out the message of freedom that Titus had heard, that Titus had received, that Titus was living in. And the apostles in Jerusalem said, yes and amen. Same message that we proclaim to the predominant Israelite audience. And look at verse six. From those who seemed to be influential, they added nothing to me. Nothing. One writer said this might be the greatest phrase in the entire book of Galatians. They added nothing. If the Jerusalem church had said, I don't know. I think there needs to be a condition for full acceptance before God. I think the prerequisite for full acceptance and full assurance before God is faith in Christ for salvation and adherence to the Jewish civil and moral and cultural law. What would have happened? the entire ministry of the gospel would have been fractured. Paul's been traveling, proclaiming the freedom of the gospel to Gentile regions. He's been on multiple journeys, missionary journeys by this point in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was growing through the preaching of the gospel. If they had decided, ah, no, I, th- I think these Judaizers, I think they're right. I think the Gentiles, Paul, when you're preaching, they need to be able to adhere to our Jewish cultures, to our, custo- our cultural norms for any kind of assurance the expansion of the gospel would have been thwarted. It would have been fractured in two. If Paul, if Paul had listened to those Judaizers who wanted all the Gentiles to follow Jewish cultural norms, to be circumcised, if he had caved into the pressure, the progress of gospel freedom would have been stalled. I mean, just think about it like a human for a minute. Just think about how difficult it is even for you now as a follower of Christ day in and day out to live in and receive and accept the assurance of your standing before God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Just think how hard it is for you today and tomorrow and the next day to believe that. How desperately your heart wants to say it was because you read your Bible more today, because you prayed more today, because you didn't do this today that you did yesterday. It's because you did something that you completed what Christ started. 
You want so desperately in your heart to have some claim to what God has accomplished before you in Christ. Think of how hard it is for you just to live in that as a follower of Christ today. Remember how hard it was to receive it the first time. Anytime the gospel is proclaimed and we add some kind of condition, some kind of prerequisite, some kind of cultural demand, some kind of preferential demand to it, you kill the progress of the gospel. Friends, when Paul, when Paul stood up for the simplicity of the gospel, when Paul fought for the preservation of gospel freedom in Jerusalem, I want you to see something. I had never seen this before. I owe this completely to another pastor, a guy named Ray Ortland, who helped me see this. When Paul stood up in Jerusalem to preserve the freedom of the gospel, he did it with you in mind. You've got to catch this. He did it with you in mind. Look at verse five. To them, these who wanted to take them into slavery, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul's writing this to the churches in Galatia years after this incident in Jerusalem. And what Paul says is that when he was in Jerusalem, when he was contending for the freedom of the gospel in Jerusalem, he was contending for your freedom so that everyone who would ever hear the message of God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone could experience the freedom that God wills and intends for them. He wasn't just fighting for freedom for himself. He wasn't just fighting for the freedom of the gospel for Titus. He was fighting for the preservation of the freedom for every man, woman, and child who would ever hear the de declared good news of God. When you and I are diligent as God's people together, when we're diligent in our own lives to preserve the simplicity of the gospel, to preserve the freedom of the gospel, you've got to realize we're not simply preserving it for ourselves. Think about the men, the women, the children that God and his providence one day will bring through the doors on a Sunday morning like this. Just imagine. Families right now who just woke up probably 30 minutes ago. They've never known that God intends some kind of freedom for their life, a greater sense of freedom through his son. Think about all the young men and young women who just got home about 30 minutes ago from last night. They don't know the freedom that God has for them, the freedom that God intends for them. When you and I preserve the freedom of the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel, what we're doing is we're preserving the message of the gospel for the day that they hear it. That when God might bring them in here through your friendship, that when you might share the, the gospel with them wherever you might encounter them out in your life, they're not going to hear, yes, believe in Jesus for the salvation of your sins and then stop doing all these things to make sure God will still love you. When we fight for the preservation and simplicity of the gospel here to preserve it here, we're doing it for all of those that God's gonna bring to himself. It's not just for us. Friends, it's vital in every day and in every place that you and I be willing to preserve the simplicity of the gospel. God means for us to live in, to enjoy, and to preserve the freedom that he wills for us. And we do it for his glory, we do it for our joy, and we do it for the good of those that he's going to call to himself. It's essential that we preserve the simplicity of the gospel.
But here's part two. I told you it was shorter. I've got a clock. Don't worry. When the gospel is preserved, when the simplicity of the gospel is protected, when the gospel amongst us that we believe and that we proclaim is full strength, no, no prerequisites, no conditions, no distortions, that gospel lays the only true foundation for unity and partnership and diversity in gospel mission. That's it. Without the simplicity of the gospel being the unifying factor between God's people, there can be no partnership and real unity in gospel ministry. Watch this. Verse 2. Paul said, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. They didn't invite me. They didn't summons me. They didn't say, Paul, you got to get here so we can correct you. Paul, you got to come up here so we can teach you. Paul, you got to come up here so you can teach us. There was no summons to Jerusalem. Paul went because of a revelation. God revealed something to Paul and he doesn't give us the details. But what we can understand from the whole story is that God revealed something to Paul about a potential shift, a, a, a schism that could have occurred in the church. There's a unity and a partnership that needed to be preserved. And for that unity, Paul goes to Jerusalem to lay the message of the gospel before the Jerusalem church. Look at verse 2. I set before them the gospel that I proclaimed to the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now here's what you need to understand. Paul wasn't doubting the gospel that he preached. Paul's feelings about what he's doing weren't changing. Paul wasn't all of a sudden unsure about what he had been saying. What Paul is trying to achieve is the clarity of unity and partnership and the simplicity to the gospel. Because if the church in Jerusalem had decided that there needed to be some kind of cultural prerequisite or condition for people to be saved, again, the mission of the gospel would be split. Everything that Paul had been doing, he'd have been doing in vain. One writer says his commission it didn't come from Jerusalem, but his mission couldn't be executed effectively except in fellowship with Jerusalem. Any kind of breakage between his mission and the mother church would be disastrous. Christ would be divided. And all the energy which Paul had devoted and hoped to devote to evangelizing the Gentile world would be frustrated. So he goes because he's trying to make sure that their unity, their fellowship, their ministry is built upon the simplicity of the gospel. And as you see in the story, they agree with Paul. Paul lays the gospel out before them. They say yes and amen, and they agree upon the proclaiming work of the gospel to the nations. And together, you can look at the words that Paul uses at some point this week. Together, they recognize that everything that they're doing, the transformation of their life <clears throat> and the forward work of the ministry is doing nothing but the grace of God. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> they realized that God had entrusted all of them with the gospel. God had entrusted Paul with the gospel to the uncircumcised and Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. That God is the one who chose them. God's the one who appointed them. God's the one who gave them the grace in the first place. Verse eight, they recognize together that in doing what they're doing, God alone is the one who strengthens both of them. It's God who works through Peter. It's God who works through Paul. No posturing, no positioning, they're celebrating the grace of God to them. And they realize, verse 9, Paul says, they perceive of the grace that God had given. They all saw that the gospel they had experienced, the gospel freedom they were living in, and the gospel message they were proclaiming was a gift from God alone, and it was a privilege to be a part of it. Together, Paul, the Jerusalem leaders, 
They celebrated what God had done in them. They didn't establish personal territories. They didn't establish personal kingdoms. Go read Acts. Peter keeps preaching to Gentiles and Gentiles get saved. Paul keeps going to synagogues and keeps getting kicked out. They each have been given a particular grace of God and were strengthened by the grace of God to go and do what God called them to do. And so Paul says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You see, underneath the ability to have the right hand of fellowship and the diversity of the mission that's happening, the advancement of the gospel to to one part of the world and the advancement of the gospel to another part of the world, the advancement of the gospel to one particular culture and the advancement of the gospel to another particular culture, particular things that have to be done to reach one culture and particular things that have to be done to reach another culture. Underneath the ability to do that together in unity and in partnership must be an agreement upon the simplicity of the gospel. It forms the only real foundation for the gospel to to run. It forms the only real foundation for the diversity of mission. The minute that we begin to add anything to the gospel, culturally, traditionally, whatever, we're beginning to behave like those false brothers who were sneaking in, trying to take those that God had set free back into bondage. And whenever we add anything, culturally, preferentially, traditionally, whatever it may be, whenever we begin to add anything to the gospel, we fracture any real foundation for unity and partnership in the diversity of gospel mission. But when the gospel is preserved, when the simplicity of the gospel is fought for, when the freedom of the gospel is agreed upon and made central, there can be tremendous diversity in gospel ministry. It's why we take time on Sunday mornings sometimes to pray for other churches in the city, to pray for other churches in the region. It's why we brought pastors like Dan Murata up front to talk about the church he was planting here in, in Richmond, Redeemer Anglican. And it's why we didn't just pray for them, but gave them people to go help plant it. Because when the simplicity of the gospel is agreed upon, when the freedom of the gospel is preserved, there can be tremendous partnership and unity in a diversity of gospel ministry. Friends, when we talk about being gospel-centered around here, it's not just our best effort to stay on top of whatever the church language trends are. I mean, every Christian book now is gospel-centered something or other. It's not just our best effort to stay current. To talk about gospel being gospel-centered isn't just a descriptor, it's a declaration. It's a line in the sand of, to some degree. This is what is essential. This is what can't be compromised. This is the only real foundation for hope and assurance for sinful men and women like you and I in this world. It is the message of grace and peace to you by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. And on that issue, we can't compromise. And on that issue, we must be willing to do whatever is necessary in our own hearts and together to preserve that simplicity and that freedom. Friends, as we get ready to respond this morning to God's word, I want you to ask yourself, are you you willing, even in your own heart, to do whatever is necessary to preserve the simplicity of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel? 
as we get ready to respond to God this morning, as we receive communion, I want to read something to you to help you prepare. One writer said, the Christian gospel, unlike any other religion on the world, does not demand cultural conformity. It doesn't absolutize one cultural location or one cultural moment. Jesus loves and values and visits and clothes himself in every culture in this world. Praise God. Just look around the room and celebrate that reality. But not only that, God clothes us in Jesus' righteousness. God doesn't clothe us in someone else's expectations or preference. By grace, you're free to be who you are. You're free to enjoy everything that God approves of. How could we then live any other way? As you prepare to come and respond to God's word this morning, as a follower of Christ, when you come and take a piece of bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sin, you dip it in that cup of juice, remembering the blood of Christ poured out for your forgiveness and for your cleansing. Think about this. There's nothing in yourself that you can do to add to the finished work of Christ. Paul fought for that freedom, and so must we. In every generation, we must oppose any well-meaning but wrong-headed addition to the gospel, and I'll add, even if it's in our own heart. So let's keep it simple, let's keep it free, and let's remember that Jesus alone has paid it all. We pray for us, and then we'll prepare to respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the declaration that your will for us is freedom. Lord, that you, through your Son, lived the life that we were created to live and died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, and that through faith alone in him alone, we can experience the freedom that you purpose for us to live in. God, for in any way that we have bound ourselves or have bound one another by our preferences or our conditions for acceptance, Lord, show those to us this morning. Show those conditions to us in our heart that we might repent of them, might cast them down and turn from them, that we might stand again or for the first time on the sure foundation of your love for us through your son. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that miracle in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com dot com.